1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassie Zachary. And April Callahan.
0: Welcome, Dressed listeners. So to kick off this episode, I'd like to ask you all for a very small favor, wherever you are. Whatever it is that you may be doing, you might be at the gym or out for a walk or a jog. Some of you might be driving, while others of you might be cooking or up to something crafty. And we say this because we know many of you are sewers and makers. But what I'd like is for you to think back to the last time that you went shopping for clothes. Where did you go? Was it a boutique, a vintage shop? Was it the mall? What did you buy that day? And I want you to think about all the details of your shopping experience. And I'm going to turn this question to you, Cass. Can you recall if there were mannequins in the shop where you last purchased an item of clothing? And if so, can you describe them?
1: Um, I, that's a tricky question. I don't shop a lot as our listeners know. And when I do, it's at thrift stores. So Savers does not <laughs> usually have mannequins uh, at Buffalo Exchange, which is my local uh, hot spot that I love to shop at for vintage and thrift, um, does have mannequins. And I think they're usually headless in the window, but it's hard to mm-hmm. recall.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I guess that kind of brings me to the point that mannequins have become such a ubiquitous part of our shopping experiences that oftentimes many of us barely even register their presence. But this episode might just change that for you and open your eyes a bit to the fascinating world of high-end retail display and the creators behind the scenes that stage these fashion vignettes, which are intended to entice you to literally buy into their fantasy.
1: And just listeners, we should take a moment to point out that we here in this specific episode are using the term mannequin in more of the American vernacular to refer to the static life-size, quote-unquote, dolls, which are used to model clothing for retail display. We are not using it in more of the French term where mannequin is used to refer to the living, breathing persons who model clothing as a profession. So model and mannequin are always kind of confusing depending on what context uh, you are talking about them in. But this is how we're talking about the mannequin today.
0: Yes, exactly. And some people might also refer to these quote-unquote dolls as dummies. And I'm going to shy away from using that term because the subject of our podcast today once vehemently pled with the press not to call her creations dummies.
1: Where does it even come from? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'm not really
0: sure. Maybe that is a different episode. But uh, she went to lengths to point out in the press that, um, quote, dummies are dressmaker busts or Charlie McCarthy. And that reference to Charlie McCarthy, apparently he was a well-known ventriloquist act of the day. So it was talking about the little dolls that they make talk. But really, Adele Rootstein wanted the world to know that the creations of her team of mannequin makers were no mere dummies.
1: No, they were not. Born in South Africa in 1930, Adele Rootstein immigrated to London in 1951, where she found work fashioning props for retail window displays. She recalled being tasked with making small animals, such as dogs and rabbits, for the displays, before progressing on to work as a window dresser for the British luxury brand Aqua Scudam, where she met and married her boss, industrial designer Richard Hopkins. Together, they founded their own company, Adele Rootstein Inc., in 1956, with Adele initially Handcrafting mannequin wigs at the kitchen table of their London apartment. I love those types of anecdotes.
0: Yep. <laughs> but a home enterprise, Rootstein, Inc. would not remain for long. She was destined to become, quote, the doyen of the display world, quote, a gentle tornado which swept in bringing the enthusiasm of a tourist and the acumen of a businesswoman, end quote. And a 1968 article in Women's Wear Daily describes Adele herself as, quote, South African-born, London-disciplined, and American-influenced. This small brunette is dressed by Jean Mir and coiffed by Sassoon, cobbled by Geiger of London, and legs sculptured by Mary Quant. This dynamo with a soft English Cockney accent has upended display models in the 10 short years she has
1: been in business. So obviously quite Fashionable herself. Yes. <laughs> Rutstein's innovations in the realm of display mannequins has been called a quote unquote watershed moment within the industry. Prior to the 1930s, display mannequins were so commonly sculpted from wax, which goes without saying could be wildly problematic in the context of the heat buildup behind plate glass windows. To solve the problem of molten mannequins, window dressers next turned to plaster. But these weighed in at around 200 pounds or 90 kilograms each, which is one article we read noted, quote, left behind a bloody trail of crushed feet and hands, shattered glass windows, and curses. (laughs) I got a good giggle out of that one.
0: And it was a rather bizarre twist of fate that it would be the testing of the atom bomb, which led to the next technical innovation in display mannequins. A rather lengthy article on the mannequin manufacturing industry, in, of all places, Cass, Cosmopolitan Magazine in 1976 noted, quote, not until World War II did today's lightweight fiberglass plastic doll make an appearance, believe it or not, as a byproduct of the atomic bomb. D.G. Williams, Inc., a firm which had been making plastic hands for wounded servicemen, was requested to make a full-size plastic man to hold delicate recording equipment in its interior. It was to be dropped by a parachute into the eye of the Bikini atomic test explosion. Quote, when the fiberglass dummy survived, we figured plastic that didn't melt in atom blasts could certainly survive hot department store windows, said a Williams representative. Wow. You never know where fashion history is going to take you, friends.
1: In the mid 1950s, Rustin was now poised to capitalize on this relatively new fiberglass technique for producing mannequins, as well as a growing trend for realism within the industry. Mannequin creators in America, including Lester Gabba and Cora Scoville, had been dabbling in attempting to capture the likenesses of notable socialites and celebrities in decades prior. But Roosting was to take things further by upping the realism factor by modeling real-life individuals head-to-toe down to the smallest detail— and as scholar June Rowe has noted, quote, Rootstein specialized in producing the anatomically sculpted form of a live model as a prototype for the finished mannequin, which led to a fundamental shift in the appearance of the mannequin figure and the altered perception of how mannequins were expected to look, end quote.
0: And that watershed moment that Cass referred to earlier Well, that came in 1966 when Rootstein introduced her Twiggy mannequin. The teenage British model Leslie Hornby, better known as Twiggy, was just on the brink about to step into the limelight of international superstardom when Adele hired her to pose for her own hyper-realistic mannequin. So posing live for several hours a day, while her entire physique was sculpted in clay, the resulting Twiggy mannequin remains one of Rootstein's most iconic models today.
1: And as scholar Sarah K. Schneider has noted of the novelty of Rootstein's choice of Twiggy, quote, her age and status contributed further to the appeal. The mannequin, like the 17-year-old live model, was a cultish adolescent, not a mature high society woman. A jolt came from the type of poses Rootstein chose for the mannequin line. Twiggy stood with her knees and toes turned inward, chin pushed forward, hands bounced protectively against her thighs, as the manufacturer put it, quote, Twiggy never stood erect and no mannequin has stood erect since, end quote.
0: In Adele's words, quote, the essential thing is to freeze movement and to freeze the movement which is particular to that human being, end quote. And I think this is probably why she chose her next subject, Danielle Luna, another it girl of 1966. African-American model and Detroit native Danielle Luna had only recently taken the international modeling scene by storm. Somewhere around six feet tall, perhaps a tad taller, and approximately 110 pounds, Luna had a striking physical presence that is often described in the press as kind of panther-like or feline, and her Rootstein mannequin is perhaps one of the most unusual because it's in this mid-stride stance, which appears about to leap or kind of pounce. And in addition to that, it has, quote, exceedingly articulated, almost claw-like fingers, end quote. So uh, much like the living, breathing Danielle Luna, there's something a touch otherworldly about her rooty mannequin, and it kind of sets it apart from all of the rest.
1: Yeah, and also setting it apart was the company's promotion of their Danielle Luna mannequin as the first black mannequin, a claim which, again, scholar Sarah K. Snyder questions. She says, contrary to Rootstein's boast, Luna was not the first black mannequin, but people of color had typically been represented by white features with facial features of white women whose surface had been altered to resemble Asian, Hispanic, or black skin. A far-seeing Lester Gaba may have created for a Harlem store in 1938, the first mannequin not only with black skin, but also with black features, after the store's owners had, quote, complained to him that there was no real Negro type mannequins available, end quote. The omission of this innovation in most visual merchandising histories reflects both the contemporary unpopularity of Gaba's designs and the industry's almost universal acceptance of Rutstein's claim of priority, end quote. And dress listeners, just turning back briefly on the subject of Luna herself, let this be perhaps a bit of a teaser for next week's episodes when we will learn a lot more about this enigmatic and mystifying Luna figure and her life that was ultimately all too short.
0: Yeah, she is an incredibly fascinating figure in fashion history. So tune in next week for more about that. Okay, well, Rootstein may have not exactly produced the first black mannequin. What we can definitely say is that during the 1960s and the 1970s, they were outpacing many of their competitors in introducing mannequins of color into their seasonal offerings of new styles of mannequins, which were offered in December and in June. And combined with their superb quality and avant-garde poses, Rootstein soon garnered the reputation as the creators of the quote-unquote Rolls Royces of the mannequin world. The special nature of their mannequins came at a cost, however, and one that wasn't only monetary. Due to the fact that Rootstein mannequins were not articulated, and and by that we mean that their limbs could not be repositioned like many other companies' mannequin offerings, this actually made Rootstein mannequins harder to dress. And Adele herself remarked in the press, she addressed this head on, and she says, Quote, it takes practice to dress a Rootstein. At the start, it might take a couple of hours, but with practice, the time goes down to 15 to 20 minutes.
1: She goes on to explain, quote, I don't think there should be any articulation. The poses are those of real people and real action. If any look, for instance, were to be articulated, the display man would be tempted to straighten it out and show the sleeve of a garment perfectly without a wrinkle. But whoever carries their arm that way... After all, sleeves do move and wrinkle, and the mannequin should show that. The pose is set so the model would appear as a logical part of a group, not in a lineup. I prefer to have them used in grouping. Single people rarely are off by themselves. And think how funny it would look if there was a group of identically faced and posed people standing about. In real life, I'm <laughs> assuming she's saying.
0: <laughs> yes, 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 yes. yes. Realism was key to what they did at Rootstein, basically. And her commitment to realism extended beyond the wrinkle of a sleeve, and into her choice of subjects. So while fashion icons Twiggy and Danielle Luna might have been two of her first major successes, the individuals that she tapped to pose for mannequins ran the gamut. And she explained in a video interview taken during the late 1980s, she says, quote, it starts with a concept. What is fashion going to do maybe two years ahead and then for a while afterwards? And once decided on the concept, then go around looking for the people. You can find them anywhere, on television, in a film, on the street, in a cafe, in a discotheque. And then she very funnily says, that's why I got to keep going somewhere. You have to keep your eyes open. (laughs) Yeah, and and Cass, this is another thing that I want to underscore about Adele's vision, because in many, many ways, she thought like a fashion forecaster, like a trend forecaster. She was always thinking ahead of the curve, and she was thinking about what is the new look going to be, not necessarily necessarily in terms of the garments and the clothes themselves, but the individual who embodies the cultural zeitgeist of that era. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
3: That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.
1: Kevin Arpino, who was a longtime creative director at Rootstein, explained, quote, The models we choose are somewhat chameleon. Someone who is actually beautiful to look at doesn't always make a good mannequin. We tend to go for interesting angular faces because our clients can make them look like anything they want. You try to do a face that becomes a canvas. An integral to the creation of that canvas was the company sculptor, John Taylor, who's responsible for modeling each subject's entire body in clay. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> the whole
0: thing. The whole thing, friends.
1: As the initial phase in their mannequins creation.
0: Yeah. And I found this especially fascinating, um, the process of making the mannequins. Kevin Arpino once again explains that, quote, the model poses for two hours a day for about three weeks, and it's done in clay on an armature. From that, a mold is made and you get a plaster original. And from the plaster original, you can make a production mold, which then creates the fiberglass mannequins. They're then hand-finished, hand-painted, and the wigs are made. And this handmade nature of Rootsy mannequins was particularly underscored by Adele, who a little bit later said, quote, it's one of the few handmade products left in the world The wigs are all made by hand. The makeup is hand-painted like a piece of fine art. The mannequin is made by hand. In fact, there is very little of it which isn't.
1: And that art, of course, trust listeners, comes at a price. A root scene in the 1980s would cost somewhere around the equivalent of $1,500 to $2,000 today. And let's just remember that they were meant to be used in groupings. So the department store window friends could easily have upward of $10,000 worth of mannequins posing in a single scene. (laughs) I mean, the mannequin trade was and is still very much a big business. A 1986 article pegged the industry's global revenue at that time at $1.2 billion annually. Today, that number has ballooned to $13 billion, according to a recent article in Forbes, which also curiously notes a pop in mannequin sales in light of the pandemic. While brick-and-mortar stores were buying less during 2020, restaurants and sport venues were snapping up mannequins at upwards of $600 each for a basic model in order to populate their spaces with human forms in an effort to soften the visual estrangement of social distancing. That feels creepy to me. Have have you been (laughs) to an establishment during the pandemic that had mannequins in place? I've I've seen pictures,
0: but I have to say that was not so much of a thing in New York City. Yeah,
1: not here either. So, if any of you had experienced that, let us know.
0: Curious. Yeah, but I've seen I've seen plenty of pictures. So, and also too, like looking back now, it being like almost kind of like two years later, it seems a little strange. Extra strange, or but maybe in that moment, people really needed yeah, that.
1: Yeah, so. we were all trying to figure it out, weren't we?
0: we <laughs> <Yeah>. Still are. <laughs> yeah. So back to Rootstein. Um, the legacy of Rootstein remains a major influence in the industry today. While Adele passed in 1992, the company did continue on after her death initially purchased by a Japanese company with whom she had an established working relationship for many, many years prior. And this kind of underscores the international allure of Rootstein mannequins. Press articles note throughout the decades that she had clientele in upwards of 50 countries around the world, and they were really coming for the high quality and the lifelike realism of Rootstein offerings. You know, let's face it, Gas, perhaps they were also coming a bit for the glamour of the many celebrities who pose for their very own Rootstein mannequins, including past-dressed guests, model-turned- fashion designer Zaldi, and also model Pat Cleveland, who has not one, but two different incarnations of herself as a Rootstein mannequin. The first was released in 1973, and the second in 2006, when the company released a line called Second Generation, that in addition to a new version of Pat as a mannequin, also models her children Anna and Noel Van Ravenstein.
1: I mean, throughout the years, there have been so many notable offerings from Rootstein, which, of course, accompany their mannequins based on everyday people. But some of the other names our listeners might know who sat for these three-week sessions to realize their own fiberglass doppelgangers include (laughs) notable New York personalities like Tina Chow, Diane Brill, Tukey
0: Smith, who, by the way, is the sister of fashion designer Willie Smith.
1: Oh, interesting. Um, There's also actors Joan Collins, Joanna Lumley, models Billy Blair, Sayoko, and Carmen Dallara-Fiche, who, like Pat, also sat for two incarnations, her first being at the age of just 13 years old, Another person who deserves a trust podcast episode for the yes, future. Yes,
0: yes, yes. She's been modeling for something like
1: 65 years. I know. Maybe we could get her on the show. Is that she's ambitious? 90 this year?
0: So let's see what we can do. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Cher
0: also has her own Rootstein mannequin, as does Beyonce. And Cass, even Barbie has been rootsteinified in 1983 and again in 2008. And I just want to touch back very briefly on Zaldi's Rootstein mannequins because they are especially fun. They are part of this 1996 collection of Rootstein mannequins, which was entitled Boy Girl. And um, the series features Zaldi in the role of as a male model, as he was, and then also another mannequin of him in complete drag. And it's been written that this mannequin collection was the first to conceptualize gender bending from its inception, which is very, very fun.
1: Yeah, we can't wait to post images because there's just so many wonderful incarnations of these root steam mannequins. And dress listeners, if you'd like to learn more about All of the fun offerings from Rootstein over the years, we have a couple of additional resources for you to check out. You can head over to Rootstein.com where the current owners of the brand, the Italian mannequin conglomerate Bonaveri, have done a really nice job of setting up a website on the history of Rootstein while they seemingly regroup to launch the Rootstein brand soon. And also Judy Townsend, owner of Mannequin Madness, is a company which rescues, recycles, and gives new life to unwanted mannequins. And she's done a very thorough investigation of the history of Rootstein and their creations. And you can find lots more on her site, MannequinMadness.com.
0: Yeah. And what she does at Mannequin Madness is so wonderful, Cass. I do plan on reaching out to her to see if she can join us later this season for an episode of Fashion History Now to chat with us about the topics of sustainability within the display industry. So, Judy, please expect an email from me in your inbox very soon. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. We hope that you have enjoyed a very brief history of the mannequin trade vis-a-vis one of its most innovative brands, Adele Rootstein Inc. And There's actually quite a lot more to say on the subject of mannequins. So if you would like for us to do a future episode going all the way back in history to say, you know, the 17th and 18th centuries, let us know because I think we can make that happen. In the meantime, may you consider
1: how to strike a pose next time you get dressed. And we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com or feel free to reach out to us on our DMs at dress underscore podcast, which is of course our Instagram where we can post images to accompany each week's episodes. If you'd like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate it. And also appreciated are our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. More Dress coming your way on Tuesday.
0: Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows